This is Metal Mike, and in this episode of the 80s Glam Metal Cast, we talk to roadie-turned-author Joel Miller. We discuss his book, The Memoir of a Roadie. Axel said I made a great cup of tea. Scott Weiland liked the Carpenters, and Ozzy drinks rosé. Quite a title, right? It's got some great inside tales about those artists and some glam metal acts like Poison and Quiet Riot. You gotta check this thing out. Joel, welcome to the 80s Glam Metal Cast. How you doing, brother? I'm good, man. Thank you. Well, hey, the book is The Memoir of a Roadie. Axel said you made a great cup of tea. Scott Whelan likes Carpenters. And Ozzy drinks rosé. That's quite a title. (laughs) A bit of fun, right? A bit of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, man, hey, I read the book. It was a great read. I mean, there's all kinds of details about what went on, you know, on the road and everything. Did you keep a journal or something on the road? That's exactly what I did. So basically, I had come home and I had a bit of money from per diem and I bought a laptop computer. And with my new toy, I kind of was thinking of what I could do with it. So I could get on AOL and talk in chat rooms, but I didn't really know too much. I could watch a DVD in my hotel room, but... um, Thinking along those lines of what can I do with this new toy, I just began to keep a daily journal of what was going on when I was touring. And so I started it when I was uh, just starting out with STP, and I kind of liked it, so I kept doing it. That's awesome, man. Well, one very fast. there's a lot of fascinating pieces of the book, but uh, a big one I thought was, was when you were working for GNR, and... One cool part is it kind of starts off and you find yourself in the storage, like rehearsal space. Tell everybody what kind of relics you were coming across in those uh, cases there. Okay, so yeah, that's probably my favorite part of the whole book because I just geeked out. And I'm actually an art dealer now, which I don't talk about in the book, but I, I it's my profession is selling. It was art. Now it's a lot of also music and mo- uh, film memorabilia. So it kind of gives back story of, you know, I still had that same interest level for stuff. And so I was in the uh, the storage facility for Guns N' Roses with another guy working for the band. And uh, we, we just pull it. I always do it when I start working for a new band, or used to do it. And, and you go through the storage to see if there's any stuff you can use in the future, expendables. And so uh, we were pulling everything out, and nobody had been in there for a long, 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 long time. And there was a case at the back of the room and I couldn't roll it out, but it was a clearly a wardrobe case. A wardrobe case is taller, and it looks like you would hang... It looks like a wardrobe in a bedroom. And I don't really care about that stuff. I'm not, uh, I'm not wardrobe or costume, so whatever. So I left it there because I couldn't pull it so easy. And uh, once we had the whole room empty, I went back to it just to make sure it, it did just have wardrobe in it. And I don't know, maybe honestly, between you and me, as a fan, maybe I did just want to see what was in every case. Yeah, sure. And when I opened it up, yeah, because you don't know, and I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a really big Guns N' Roses fan, and so <clears throat> I opened it up, and it's just this, this nauseating smell of, of, of funk, <laughs> of Guns N' Roses funk, which is, which is strong funk, strong funk. And it was all the leathers that the band had worn for the Appetite for Destruction tour, you know, and I just, I froze in place just, just good God. And the other guy I was with had come back into the room and he's like, dude, you know, he told me what I was looking at and I was just mesmerized. So I wanted to get the case outside with everything else anyway. I was going to restructure everything and, and kind of uh, put everything in a way where I knew where everything was. 
And I looked under to see why it wouldn't roll, and there was a piece of black fabric. And so I pulled it out, and I was able to roll the case out. And I looked at the fabric, and I just figured I'd, I'd open it up and just see. If, honestly, I was thinking, like, what could be inside of it? I, I don't know. But I was assuming it was just extra backdrop stuff, crap, you know? Yep. And as I opened it to have a better look, it was the Appetite for Destruction backdrop. And I just was, I was literally just crying with laughter <laughs> with how exciting um, my life was. I, it was just the neatest thing. And then the fact that I had found it scrunched up underneath the case in the back of storage was just so amazing to me you know spellbinding is the word i can think of i don't know why but i like that word (laughs) but i you know i was so happy i could now preserve this by putting it in a better place and uh but that being said it was in great condition it it was really pretty good because no one ever went into the storage and for all i know it's still wherever i left it (laughs) (laughs) so now once you the band comes to rehearse you're realizing this isn't the old school guns and roses that you fell in love with in 1987 this is an all new lineup now with axel yeah i kind of knew a little bit before i started working for them that it wasn't going to be slash and and duff Mm -hmm. and those guys um so i i yeah i didn't quite know and I was a little tiffed. We're not tiffed. I was a little bummed because I, uh, I'm a fan. I was, you know, I, I was really excited to maybe see all of them. But I quickly changed my my idea to be like, well, this is the closest I'm ever going to get to working for my favorite band, mm-hmm. and maybe it'll be cool. And so when I started working for them, it was it was pretty cool. You know, Brain is an incredible drummer, and Buckethead is in a league of his own, and. Robin is a pretty funky guitar player. It was fun. It was it was a good opportunity, and uh, I never thought Guns would ever be together from that lineup. So the fact that you know most of the guys are playing together now is amazing to me. <laughs> but I never ever thought it would ever happen. Isn't that crazy? So, uh, I, I, I always think the same thing because I never thought Guns N' Roses would get back together and I'm a huge Kiss fan and I always thought Kiss would never get back with the original guys because all they ever did was talk shit about each other. And I guess at the end of the day, you know, as fans sometimes we're naive, but I guess it's all about money, right? Sometimes when the money's you runs out... You know say, I mean? Money just, talks, my friend. Money right. talks, that's man. Right. Yeah, no, that, that's a, I think that's exactly what it is because... You know, the people that you've gone through life and you don't get along with, why would you try to talk to them again? There's enough other people out there. Why would you care? Right. So there's one reason, and it's, man, that divorce was expensive, (laughs) or or whatever (laughs) whatever it is. You know, I'd like to think as a fan, it's just people who are like, man, we made some great stuff. We should overcome this. Yep. But, um, you know, a lot of us guys are tough. Whether we're right or wrong, we're hard to deal with. So, but I'm glad. You know, as a music fan, I'm glad, and I believe they're doing a new album. So we'll get to hear what it sounds like, and I'm going to be one of the first guys listening to it. So, so um, it's mentioned in the title of your book, and this is actually something that happens. Uh, Axel had a dude that worked for him that just made his tea, right? Or he was going to go over to, uh, to Brazil and make his tea for him. So. Was he kind of a diva? That's the way he kind of comes across in the book. The tea guy? No, man. No, his axle. <laughs> the, the tea guy was not a diva, just jeans with a sweatshirt kind of fella. <laughs> How was Axel um, a diva? <laughs> oh, Axel, Axel, Axel. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't really know. So, you know, I, I, I'm careful 
goes into this line because at the end of the day, I'm a fan. Right. And what I say to people, and I don't know if I said it in the book or not, but I was getting paid to do a job. I was getting paid to do a job, and it happened to be from a favorite band. So if you don't like your job, bail, quit, leave. Go get another gig, man. And so people were telling me how much of a nightmare he can be, and there was definitely a fear factor, but he was okay. With all that being said, the dude picked up a guitar one day, and naively, I didn't actually know he knew how to play guitar. He was pretty good. And so I'm watching this guy play instruments and stuff as a fan, and he he overcame any little issues that we, you and I could drum up to make an interesting conversation by being such an accomplished musician mm-hmm. and really filling the shoes of what a fan like me wanted to see. So I didn't see too much diva stuff. You know, there, there definitely was some. You know, we talk about uh, he fired me for right. picking up the phone <laughs> when it was really loud in the recording studio. Who's that moron? You know, fire that guy. Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know. And then... You know, the T style, I'm not really sure. I never really talked to the guy. I don't know if it was Axel's buddy who he was hooking up. If so, hats off to Axel, then, you know. <laughs> or if his job really was, is he was this, like, you know, hardcore tea-making guru from some special place on Earth. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, I'll tell you a good one. So I, I'm pretty friendly with Dizzy. And so... I hit him up. I'm like, you know, I've done this book and whatnot. And um, if you could throw me a quote was really why. Mm-hmm. And he's, well, what's, what's your book called, dude? I'm like, it's called Axel Said I Made a Great Cup of Tea. He's like, what? <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah, man. I mean, you only had so many conversations with him. And, and two of those conversations were um, Axel said, you know, hey, dude, can you make me some tea? And I said, yeah. And then later he said to me, that was some good tea. So Tizzy's like, wouldn't that be like one conversation? <laughs> <laughs> and, I'm all, and I'm like, no, no, man, it was over. It was over the whole night. So it's clearly two conversations. He goes, you can't come up with a better book title than that. <laughs> and so, and so I was like, all right, all right. And so I extended the book title a bit. But initially, that's all it was. It was Axel said I made a great cup of tea. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome, man. So during this book, uh, the majority of your journey is spent um, when you were on uh, the road with STP. That was basically your first time as a roadie. And it's pretty awesome because it's kind of like you're truly figuring this all up uh, as you go. I completely am. Yeah, I was, um, you know, to go into the quick, quick, quick story. My father was a car mechanic. Guy comes in to get his car fixed. Guy says, hey, do you go go work for STP? I think the guy's full of crap. A few days later, I'm on a plane uh, going to Vegas to work for this band called STP. And, yeah, you couldn't be any greener. He didn't tell me anything about anything. I brought what I normally wore, which was blue jeans and a white T-shirt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, and so I'm on stage for the first couple shows, A, not doing what, not knowing what I'm doing, and B, really looking like I'm not knowing it either because <laughs> roadies don't wear white T-shirts. And so everything was a learning curve. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm recording the audio book right now, so I'm going through it extensively. And it's really quite clear how afraid I am of just getting fired. Right. And I just, um, I just didn't want this cool little trip to end because at the end of the day, I was a little unsure why they were hiring me. <laughs> there could have been somebody who had done this before who was a little more confident. But I don't think they could have hired somebody with a bigger heart who wanted it all to work. Right. And I think, you know, now as a quote-unquote adult, 
I think that's why they kept me around. Um, and uh, I'm really glad that they all did. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's one point where you talk about uh, with that first tour, you lose a road case and then you almost get fired, but you don't. And I think it is. I think you're a likable character, um, and I think I think that's why they like to have you on there. I think you know. Also, like you said, you know, you were working hard. You had a good heart. But uh, some of us, you know, let's face it. In life, it's all a people game, right? You do business and you yeah. work with people that you like. If you were a prick or whatever, they probably would have said, "See ya," you know. But I think it is. I oh, think, they would have. They fired yeah. so many people. You know, I learned I, I was pretty good at running a crew, which was a really big deal. So I could deal with the people's different personalities coming and going every day, showing the stagehands some respect so they actually work hard. And I, that I was pretty good at. That helped keep me on board. And then I, I point out, you know, the character Caesar in the book, who's my big boss guy. Yep. Yep. I, I, I flat out asked him, and, and these are all, these are pretty much verbatim conversations. I just, why didn't you fire me, dude? And, and it was because I saw all these other people coming and going, why, why'd you keep me? And he says it. He says it's because you wanted to work in music and I wanted to give you the chance. So, but with that being said, when he told me I'm never giving you another chance, I think that was true. I I really do. Mm -hmm. I I think he, I know he would have fired me. So I wasn't going to let that happen. And, uh, I became very serious about the job and I think I climbed the ladder pretty quick and I did pretty good. Definitely, man. You know, as I got reading this, I really, I do. I think you're a great storyteller. Um, I enjoyed the sarcasm and wit uh, you kind of sound like somebody, you kind of talk the way my friends and I would all talk to each other back in the day. And this kind of whole process just keeps drawing you in. Uh, A, you get an inside look at what's going on behind the scenes in the rock world. And for those uh, guys like me, I played in bands when I was a young kid. I toured around a little bit and never to the scale of obviously the bands that you worked with. But it kind of brings you back to those days because there were always those colorful characters, you know, when it comes to road people and, and, and going to the gigs there was always the you know the guy that owned the club that was a asshole or or crazy or you know i just i kind of felt like i was back in my old days when i was a teenager when i used to play in bands and stuff so it all felt very familiar to me i'm really glad because to me that's a feather in the hat it's the biggest compliment you could give me and i genuinely appreciate it you know what i what i wanted to achieve was this how i tell the stories always which is over a beer (laughs) And, and you and i are just sitting in the bar drinking a beer and i'm telling the stories that's how it's written. Yeah. And then the second part is, you know, times are tough. I didn't know that we were going to have this crazy year, but times are tough. And the hope was that you would laugh a little bit. You know, if you laughed out loud once or even if you giggled a little, that's what I wanted. I wanted people to have a bit of fun. You know, you and I, we, were, we remember so well that first record that we got and we picked up and we're like, damn, I get to listen to this all night long. Yep, yep. <laughs> and it, it's, it's that love of music. It's the passion that keeps you doing what you're doing and made me want to try and write uh, my book. And I, I still, you know, and I'm sure you do too. There, there's music like, how could I have never heard of these guys? You know, this is so awesome. <laughs> and, you, and you get all giddy. I remember I, uh, Blind Melon, I don't know, it was probably 12, 13 years ago now. I called Dizzy and I'm like, dude, what the fuck? He's a what? I'm like, how could you never tell me how good these guys are, dude? And I was, I was mad at him. I was seriously mad. He goes, yeah, they're great. I'm like, you should have told me this, man. I thought we were friends. So it happens. Sometimes there's just these bands that come out of nowhere. Like, how did I miss them? But, you know, glad that we found them eventually, for sure. Yeah, it's so exciting, though. It keeps you listening. And ah, it's great stuff, yeah. 
<laughs> so two guys, you mentioned Caesar. So it was Nigel and Caesar. These are kind of like your roadie mentors or whatever, your bosses. Whatever happened to these guys? Because these guys are pretty interesting characters that pretty much follow you through the whole journey. They're still plugging along. They're are still they? doing their thing. You know, they, the characters are a little bit of a blend of, a, of various people every now and then. So, but, um, yeah, they're still cruising. Yeah, I think I said it. The end of the book, you know, what happens to people, and I, I say, yeah, some of them are still working, some of them aren't. And I don't know. It's tough being on the road, honestly, for decades. And so some people now, they try and get gigs where they're not touring all the time. So. Now, with STP, you know, you did spend a lot of time with these guys. And one thing I kept thinking in my mind as I'm reading it, is, and I wanted to know, and I want to ask you this, it ever crossed your mind, did you think that Scott was not going to live a long life? Oh, uh, that's a tough question. And to be really honest, it's, uh, yeah, I didn't think he would. And, um, and I never saw him do any drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just the lifestyle I knew that he was living um, or have lived anyway. And it's an odd feeling when you have a guy that you, you kind of get to know, you know, you're just waiting. So I've, all these, I've been doing quite a few interviews. I've been having fun with them. And they always ask the, the question, how did you feel when Scott died? Everybody. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, you feel, you feel bad. I say to people, I feel like maybe I, I had become an adult, you know, the circle of the book of this, this guy, this kid finding his way into quote unquote manhood. I felt maybe the circle had really come to a complete end because this guy finally packed it in. But the unfortunate part is that he has kids and it, uh, that's the part that sucks. Yeah. His, uh, his kids will never get to know their, their dad as well as, Maybe I did because I was in my 20s, you know. They have their own experiences, but it's sad. It's sad. So now they'll live hearing all the stories about their dad and how great STP is, but sure it would have been nice if he was there. So that's the part that is a little rough. A lot of different characters in rock just kind of pop up in this book randomly, and one that definitely caught my attention was was Sharon Osbourne. Uh, so a lot of people say, you know, she's ruthless, and you got to see a little glimpse of that, right, with with Limp Biscuit. Yeah, so I, you know, I've had a couple of female uh, journalists, and they tell me how much they they like my respect for Sharon, and I do. I have a really huge amount of respect for her. She's a tough lady, man, and I, I love Ozzy and. There's no way Ozzy would be here right now if it wasn't for her. Um, and she's a good mom, and she's a cool lady. And so, yeah, there was one part where it was Fred Durst, and she just pulled the plug on him on the stage, and she didn't give a shit. She <laughs> didn't crazy. care at all, like nothing. This is my show, honey. You know, <laughs> she's tough. And um, there was a character in the book I called him the ultimate roadie, and I named him Rigger Steve. Yeah. And uh, when he, he did pass away, when he did pass away, Sharon took his dog, and she took care of it until uh, his family could come and, and collect the dog. And, you know, you could say, oh, well, big deal. But no, that, that's a pretty big deal. Why would you need to stick your neck out and do stuff like that? You don't. And so it really speaks volumes about, I think, how cool she is and how the toughest of people can also be so nurturing and kind. And she was super nice to me. She always was very polite and very, very nice to me. That's awesome. So now toward the end of the book, you get on the Glam Slam Metal Jam Tour, right? Uh, and Poison. That's absolutely right. So you get to reconnect with your bagel-eating buddy, C.C. DeVille. That's totally true. <laughs> You're on it. That is right, yes. So I'm a big fan of C.C. too. And we uh, talk in the book, we definitely built a friendship. And people seem to really like that uh, 
you know, Cece's character in, in the book, and I tried to make him uh, a human. And even though everybody is human, I made a, a lot of effort into making him just a, a person. Right. And um, he's a cool cat, man. He, he's a really good guy, for real. Yeah, I can see that you guys definitely had a connection. Now, with this tour, I know the pay wasn't so hot and the budgets were tight. And what we got to remind the listeners is that, you know, this is 2001. So basically, glam bands are kind of coming back out of the shadows of grunge from the 90s. So it kind of makes sense that, you know, their, their budgets really weren't there, but at least they were to the point where they could do it again, you know? Yeah, no, they didn't pay a lot. <laughs> it was my worst paying tour. I make it pretty clear in the book. <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, they're fun bands, man. And, and I say it clearly. I say at the beginning, I shave my head every day against the long hairs, you know, this crappy music I was stuck listening to and wah, wah, wah. But then a few shows in, I was kind of like, woohoo! Party! <laughs> so now, Party! Yeah, it's fun. You... I mean, you know, if you're there to see Led Zeppelin, it's the wrong show. Right. But if you're there to have a really good time, it's an absolute ideal place to be. It's fun. And what was nice about Poison specifically is that's how they looked at it, too. You know, they all did. They were there. This is fun music. They also care about the fun aspect of it all. And that's kind of nice. That's a little different. You know, you're not watching Joe Satriani on stage. You're just you're getting drunk and having a good time. <laughs> One thing that I thought was interesting is you said that Brett and Cece were pretty much only together on stage. Was there some kind of yeah. tension there, do you think? Or what was the story there? Never felt any tension. They okay. just never hung out with each other, ever. Hmm. Ever. So uh, I never even saw them interact, ever. Wow, that's that's interesting. Another person yeah. that comes up in the book, just briefly, uh, is Kevin DeBro from Quiet Riot. And I a lot of stories out there that this guy, you know, has a big mouth, he has an attitude, and that kind of you know brought down Quiet Riot's success. That's what some people think. I actually kind of agree with it as well. Um, you got a little taste of his attitude, right? A little bit. So it's really funny. I did an article the other day, or an interview the other day for the Jewish Journal. Okay. <laughs> and the guy's <laughs> like, and he brings up Kevin Dubrow. I'm like, yeah, yeah. He goes, he's the only Jewish guy that you mentioned, and you didn't go well with him. I'm like, oh, shit. I didn't know the guy was Jew. I didn't either. You know, I didn't know you were going to ask, ask me that, Darren. And so... <laughs> I'm like, well, how religious was he, bro? You know, and the guy's kind of like, well, I don't know. I'm like, well, you get it together and you get back to me. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, he, so he, he's, I'm chatting to the guy. We're, we're going to be touring for a while. So you start talking to people over dinner. And I, I said, to him, hey, I didn't know that Randy Rhodes started Quiet Riot. That's pretty cool. And he was like, yeah, man, he did for sure. He was totally nice, like totally normal. We had a normal conversation. Anyway, the guy gets up on the stage. And he comes out and he goes, you know what's amazing? You know what's amazing? You know, the guys that work for our band, our band, man, they don't even know that Randy Rhodes started it. And I'm looking like, is this fucking guy talking about me? <laughs> you know? And I'm getting, I got really mad. I'm like, well, we'll see about this fucking band picking up their own crap and taking it off the stage because it ain't going to be me. <laughs> and so um, that was my big beef with them. And I said it the other day, I don't know. I mean, you say certain things to get the uh, audience going. Yeah. So maybe it was just something along those lines. And it's not like I flicked the guy off every day or whatever. I just didn't talk to him again because I thought he was a dick. I, I thought that was not cool. But the rest of the dudes were really nice. You know, Rudy was a cool guy. Nice. Frankie was great. So 
they kind of made up for him being, uh, <laughs> I'm going to say a douchebag, but the guy's dead, so it's a little bit mean. Yeah, you know what? Yeah. yeah, he's a great vocalist, you know, rest in peace to Kevin uh, and Frankie. Um, but, you know, the stories are out there that, you know, he was, you know, he had, he could have a little chip on his shoulder occasionally. So he was, a, he was a little tough to me and I was a little butthurt that day. Cause I'm like, you know, I'm some new kid. And I was, I was only 23. A question like that's not that out of left field. You no. know, Randy Rhodes started, he absolutely did. Wow. So what was Randy like? You know, well, that's where it would have gone. Yeah. So I thought it was a little, eh. but, uh, again, you know, Frankie, it's so sad. He passed away. Oh, young okay. Such a nice guy. So I've heard that from many people. One question that I kind of came to me as I'm reading this is: there's all this kind of old school rock and roll debauchery through the whole book, really. And uh, mm. my question to you is: do you think you were kind of experiencing the last wave of that kind of stuff? That's an interesting question. You know, I don't know because I don't tour anymore. But I know a lot of stuff stopped. I mean, you can't get people into shows anymore. Right. You have to buy tickets and stuff. And I, I think a lot of it has stopped yeah i mean these tours now it's hard to make a buck in music so they just have mega bands on the same list uh, i don't yeah i don't know i kind of feel in a way yeah they did but i'm touring you know, outside of poison these all of the rest of these bands are in guns and roses too but the stone temple pilots audience it, it was all a, a, it was that era real tight of that few years so if you like music from 96 to 2000, I tore, I, I tore with everybody. Yeah. And that definitely changed. You know, the music now is so very different from, well, what you and I like. But. Yeah. You know, one thing that came to mind, too, is when you think of what goes on today, and I understand why bands do it, but, you know, obviously we're in a more PC culture. The whole thing's gotten very corporate. There's all these meet and greets. Uh, people pay to get backstage. So basically you're getting people that have money right that they're the only ones that are getting back there so uh I, yeah. it's, it's definitely it's a different dynamic it's stale yeah for it's sure stale and, you know it's no fun and uh, i say in there you know getting backstage is only so interesting the show's supposed to be seen from the front of the stage that's true you know, if you really want to do yeah, get into the front of the house then you're then you're really styling but i think more and more it is true the corporate veil has succeeded <laughs> to take over a lot of the fun in music. Definitely. Well, man, hey, this has been a great conversation about the book. Uh, where can people pick it up? Amazon, is that the best place? Or Yeah, Amazon. I'm working on an uh, audio book every day here. I hope to have it done in the next couple of weeks. And um, might be weaving in a song I wrote with Dizzy, actually, like a decade ago. So Sweet. That could be a little bit. Yeah, it could be cool. So we'll see. He said, okay, we'll see if he finishes it. But we've got the rest in here that I've had for a while. And I've written a bit of music here, so it doesn't suck. Nice. <laughs> it's not terrible. Dizzy's a genius, so there you go. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad that I read this. I'll be honest, I haven't read a book in a long time, and once I read this, it was kind of like the floodgates open, and I've read some other books since, so thanks for getting me reading again, Joel. <laughs> no problem. Literacy for the masses. <laughs> Who Metalheads. would have it would come from glam rock guys? <laughs> Metalheads are not dumb. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't read, though... Don't worry, audiobook is coming <laughs> soon. <laughs> nice. uh, all right, brother, this is a great conversation. Thanks so much. Hey, thank you, man. I appreciate your time very much. Yep, take care, Joel. Well, that was a great conversation with Joel. He's a funny guy, and his book is a great read, so check it out. Another thing that's pretty great is the 80s glam metal cast. So hit subscribe. Lots of cool stuff's on the way. 
Rock on!